Well, welcome. Today we're back with another online meditation Q&A session. We take the opportunity to come together to spread the teachings of the Buddha. Take the opportunity, the Buddha said, Kano wo ma upachaka, don't let the moment pass you by. Don't let the opportunity pass you by. This life as a human being is just a moment, just a short period of time. We have the opportunity being born a human. And within that short period of time, there's even shorter periods of time where we have the opportunity to practice. We're born, maybe we've been born as humans before, but maybe we didn't have the, maybe we didn't have contact with the Buddha's teaching. Maybe we never met someone who knew anything about the Buddha's teaching or maybe we never had a chance to practice. Now we've come in contact with the Buddha's teaching. It's a rare opportunity. We're healthy. We have right view, right intention. Taking time out of our lives or we could be enjoying the sensual pleasures of life or chasing after our livelihood, wealth, prosperity, even the busy time out of just living, just surviving, to come online and with all the complicated technology to connect. We've taken this opportunity. So welcome. The way this works is we try and set as a baseline our, our quality of mind. We try to set as a baseline a mindful state of mind. Meaning before we even consider asking questions or listening to answers. We set our minds in a mindful state. If you don't have any questions, just close your eyes and take up the practice of mindfulness. If you have questions, type the questions in and then close your eyes again. The chat box isn't for chatting. You don't have to read, you certainly shouldn't be doing anything else like watching YouTube videos or reading Facebook posts or eating or drinking or listening to music or anything like that. Focus your attention. Bring your mind back to the present moment. Questions will 
be read aloud by Shraddha and I will answer them, but the main qualification for a question to be to receive an answer or to even be read is that it should be something that's important for your development in the practice. If you haven't read our booklet on how to meditate, that's what you should do first before asking questions because a lot of questions will be answered and you'll understand more about who I am and what I teach. If you've read the booklet or are interested in going further with the practice, I recommend considering to sign up for an at-home meditation course, which basically means you, you, do the, you get to do the practice as normal, but you get to meet with me once a week and we'll talk about your practice and give you further instructions and lead you through a course of training. If you have questions about worldly things or even the Buddha's theoretical teachings, we might answer, we might not. It's up to Shraddha whether she asks. And even if she asks, I might not answer. But we'll try to be generous and kind. We're here to do good as well, to, to cultivate goodness for ourselves as well. there are questions I'm ready to answer. Wanted this one is about the precepts. I have a hard time holding the five precepts and also pursuing my romantic interest. Is there no exception in holding the precepts? I could tease you and say I'm only I can only help you with the first part. So if you have a hard time holding the precepts, I can help you with that. But if you have a hard time pursuing your romantic interests, well, I have no advice. I can't help you with that. But I assume what you mean, and you haven't been unclear, I assume what you mean is that you have a hard time holding your precepts while, while pursuing romantic interests, meaning implying that somehow pursuing romantic interests gets in the way of holding the five precepts. And and the teasing comes because I have a hard time understanding the problem. So maybe you can help me with that. The five precepts are not to kill. So if you, unless you have to prove your love by by hunting a wild boar or something, that shouldn't be a problem. Uh, not to steal. So unless. You're, um, you're, you're in the person you're romantically interested in is a thief and you have to prove yourself to them or something. Or you don't have enough money to buy them gifts or something. So you steal. The third one is no uh, adultery. So yes, if you're romantically interested in someone who is already previously engaged, then you got a problem. And you'll have to work that out. 
Uh, the fourth is, so it's probably the third, but it shouldn't be a problem for most people. That's not fair, I guess. A lot of people do cheat on their spouses and partners. It's just not a Buddhist thing to do. Number four is no lying, so you shouldn't lie to people you're romantically interested in. Uh, you shouldn't lie generally, period. So yeah, that might get in the way if you have to hide your relationship or something. Maybe you're homosexual and the people around you are homophobic or something like that. That can be difficult. Uh, and the fifth one is drugs and alcohol, so I don't know how that would relate, but I have to be a little more specific. Is there no exceptions in holding the precepts? Yes, of course. If you don't care about your spiritual development and you're not interested in being reborn as a human, I'm being facetious, but it's not that there are no exceptions, it's that these are very important things. So if you break them, no one's going to condemn you or damn you or, or anything like that. It's not like the Buddha is going to come down and punish you or something. It's up to you to keep them. This is something the Buddha said is the basis of morality and ethics. So if you're not doing it well, you're not keeping the basis of morality, you're not doing the very basic thing that you should be, which is important. So don't be afraid that you you break one or something. Try and reevaluate your your goal in life and your direction in life. Because if you're not keeping them, there's something wrong with, direct, with your direction. Mother, I heard you say we should only note one thing, maybe two, and then go back to the stomach on a recent Q&A session. How can we do this while not ignoring all the things we could not? Well, it shouldn't, it shouldn't be that there are many things to note. There's only the one thing that you're focused on. If there are many things, then you're probably distracted and you should note that distracted, distracted. If there's lots, you can say overwhelmed. But I wouldn't worry too much about the ignoring idea. It's just a choosing, really. Practically speaking, you're better off coming back to the stomach. It's not, there's no, it's not like there are technical right or wrongs. It's just practically speaking a better idea. If you can't, if you're really if you try to go, you know, try to focus on the stomach, but there's something else distracting you, then yeah, you can note that. But try and come back to the stomach as soon as you can. I'm not sure if you'd like to answer this question, but it's can samatha meditation in faith once equal? It's a bit speculative, I suppose. Like the problem, kind of the problem with the question is, 
Well, I mean, let's focus on what's the practical aspect. Why are you asking this? What could a practical reason for asking this be? Are you worried about practicing samatha meditation? Samatha meditation is a good thing. Do you have an ego that gets inflated when you do things? And you're worried about doing things that right, that, that might trigger your ego? Because if it's true, I guess one clear answer might be that samatha meditation doesn't really help you with ego problems. So it is something that your ego might cling to because it doesn't help you overcome ego. When you're in a state of high samatha meditation, there is no ego generally. There really no, there isn't any egoism. There is no no delusion at that point. But it doesn't help you overcome delusion. It doesn't help you overcome ignorance. So it's very possible that it's something that you could become egotistical about. But the idea that it that by practicing it, it's somehow going to be bad for you, it's not. That's not really proper to say. It's just it's not the kind of thing that tackles the problem of ego. Meditating with others more beneficial. No. No, in the beginning it can be a good support because the people around you remind you and keep triggering the the vigilance in the mind to bring you back to present moment, but they're also eventually more of a distraction. Or eventually they're neither. Eventually it's nothing to do with what you're doing. But at some point they could be they can be in the beginning a distraction because yes, they remind you, oh yes, I have to be vigilant because there's other people here keeping me keep taking me to account. but that's a distraction the the remembrance that there's a person there and the distract being distracted by the fact that they're there, thinking about the fact that they're there. It's less powerful. Being alone is in the beginning more difficult because there is very there's much less to keep you honest, but ultimately becomes much more profound, much more real, much more pure and in the long term, it doesn't matter in the long term, it's not a problem, but until you get to that point, I would recommend not relying on other people. Not, not completely relying on them. If you want to use a group at times to make it easier, that's fine. But if you really want deep meditation, try and do it on your own. The Buddha very much was... There's very little to suggest the Buddha ever encouraged group meditation. It was, it was much more about go find your own spot. Like, like explicitly telling people to find a place where there's nobody else. Do you have to be a monk to practice Buddhism properly? 
No. Do you recommend learning Pali as a support to our practice? So I, I kind of look at these sorts of things. It's a, I mean, it's a good sort of question. Um, what sorts of things support our practice? But I look at them in terms of percentages. Like I don't have percentages, but you can get a sense. I'm not going to give you a percentage, but I want I want you to think in terms of low and high percentages. Meaning, meaning, what percent of your attention should you focus on something? Because it's all going to depend on how much time you have to put into Buddhism as a whole. So, if you take your spiritual life and suppose you have a, you don't don't make one, but suppose, but pretend you had a, a schedule or or a, a timetable, like you're in school or something, and you got to put so many hours into this and this and this, so many time slots per day and per week and, and that sort of thing. What percentage should you apply to things like learning Pali, uh, to practicing metta, to practicing any other type of protective meditation, to chanting and that sort of thing, right? Uh, like, like a, a more a more core one would be, what percentage should I ap apply to formal meditation and? Yeah, what, 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 uh, well, how much to walking and sitting is half, but like how many times a day should I practice and how long should my practices be, that sort of thing. Scheduling, that's the idea. For Pali, I would say it's just a low percentage. So meaning, and I, and I guess I have to also say that if you don't have a lot of time, if your your whole timetable isn't a, a big portion of your life, then you're not going to have enough percentage. Pali shouldn't take up enough of a percentage to make it worthwhile. So, it's the kind of thing that is good if you're if you have a lot of time in your allotted spiritual practice. Don't ever make Pali a big part like 50% or something like that. Studying is another thing, of course. Studying the Buddha's teachings. You have to think in terms of percentage, not how many hours a day should I study, no. what percentage of the time allotted to spirituality. So keep it in ratios. If you're only doing an hour of meditation a day, don't do an hour of med an hour of study. And I don't have a percentage. I'm not going to give you a number, but it should be significantly less, I would think. Pali is even less. If so, so really only if you're in a position as a monk or as someone who has has left the world, that sort of thing, would I really, really recommend learning Pali because you have a lot of time and because it is helpful. Just uh, not helpful enough to make it worth substituting time you could be rather practicing mindfulness. Is sitting crisscross necessary? No, you can sit anyway. 
If you can sit cross-legged, we recommend it. There's some really good practical benefits to sitting cross-legged. It's a good, firm, sort of um, middle ground, middle way sort of practice. Recommended over kneeling, for example, and over sitting in a chair, of course, but, but those are also ways you can sit, especially for people who have injuries. But recently there was one meditator who said they had inj an injury and then that they couldn't sit cross-legged, and I encouraged them to try, and, and they said after that, actually, it was remarkable that they were able to sit. They found it much improved as they practiced it. So don't sell yourself short. If you can, sit cross-legged, or try to see if you can sit cross-legged, and don't be afraid of a little pain. It's a good part of the growth, the growing process. But you can also even do this meditation lying down, of course, or standing up, or in any position. It's just sitting cross-legged is really a good posture, better than most others. But again, it's not the most important thing. It's not good enough to make it make it necessary or something. It's not important. It's not that important. Struggling to let go of my negative feelings, especially towards others for the wrongs I feel they have caused me. This also arises with me doing meditation. Do I need to try a different approach? So there's no struggling to let go. This is a common sort of expression, and it's common for any meditator. Until you realize that that's not how letting go works, that's not what letting go means. You can't ever struggle to let go. You have to reword it, and, and it's important because words give you meaning, they give you views and perspectives. So your perspective is, is problem is a problem. Struggling to let go. I mean, it's just, it's not a criticism. Everyone has, this is the way we tend to think of these things. We hear about letting go and we think, okay, I'm going to work towards that. Well, you don't really work towards letting go. You don't really force, you can't, of course, force yourself to let go. Letting go is, of course, the opposite of struggling. It's when you stop struggling, when you stop caring about or worrying about or obsessing about or trying in regards to something when you let it go it's a bit misleading I suppose because let go implies that it goes away and then it doesn't go away and you say oh it's not working but let it go means if it's going to go let it, it, you know, don't hold on to it it also means let come when you let go of something it might not go away but it means you're not going to keep it there you're not going to try to keep it you're not going to try to push or pull it. So if there are negative feelings, it's not about letting them go. Buddhism is definitely not about letting go negative feelings. It's about understanding them. When you understand them, you don't give rise to them. Because they're negative. Because you see. So if you're still giving rise to them, you don't understand them. And you have to try to see them more clearly. As for the wrongs that other people have caused you, that's often a problem because we feel justified. They've caused me. They've hurt me. So it's just ego, really. And that just takes clarity of mind. When you see more clearly, you'll let go of that. But just try and observe it. Don't try and let it go. 
because trying to let go isn't how letting go comes about. Letting go comes when you no longer cling, when you no longer want to cling. So hopefully that helps. In the same way that one is peripherally aware of other less prominent sensations while practicing walking meditation, should I ignore peripheral sensations to a small extent, at least during sitting meditation, until they are more prominent? Otherwise, I tend to have a very turbulent session. No, I don't recommend that generally. I would recommend noting them. If it's turbulent, then you should note that. You find that helps a lot if you note disturbed or, or distracted or restless or overwhelmed. Turbulence, okay. It'll settle down by itself. But again, don't try to jump from one thing to another. Note something, and when it's gone, try your best to come back to the rising and falling unless something else distracts you. Sometimes when I meditate, I feel like my breathing slows. And then I feel sensations in my head. Hard to describe, it's like a lightness. Should I be trying to ignore the sensation? Shouldn't ignore anything. That's, that's a general rule of thumb. So if there's a sensation, it's a feeling. You just say feeling, feeling. You don't have to call them sensations. You feel something, that's a feeling. Just say feeling, feeling. If you feel like your breathing slows, that's more of a knowing because it's conceptual. So you might say knowing, knowing, or aware, aware. I don't have a good word in English. Knowing is one I use, but you can also say aware. It just means this awareness. Oh yes, my breathing is slow. That's, that's an awareness. Note that. Knowing is maybe less clumsy than aware. Many teachers say we have to remove five hindrances as soon as possible. You say that we just have to watch and note. When hindrances arise, I get confused what to do. Please help. Yeah. For, I mean, many teachers are teaching uh, samatha meditation as a base. And so they're not interested in understanding the hindrances. They're interested in avoiding them. And I don't mean that pejorative, I'm not trying to criticize it. It really is the way samatha meditation works. You try and, they probably wouldn't use the word avoid, but that's really what you're doing. You find a way You find a way to not have to deal with them. And when you stop, they come back. But it allows you to build a great base of concentration, which can be useful to then apply to things like the hindrances. But in the Satipatthana Sutta, the Buddha said, when the hindrances arise, you know that they arise, you know how they arise, you know how they cease, you understand them. When the mind is full of anger, you know that the mind is full of anger. He never talked about removing them, not in the Satipatthana Sutta. So we have two clearly different ways of practicing. So it really depends how you want to practice. If you're interested in my advice, you know how I teach. So there you go. 
You don't have to be confused. This teacher teaches that, that teacher teaches that. Whichever teacher you follow, follow that one. Don't try and follow two different teachers who teach two different things. You say, please help. Well, if you want my help, you know what I teach. So there you go. Don't have to doubt anymore. You doubt, say doubting, doubting. If you're confused, say confused, confused. That's another hindrance. There's another question that may be from some other teaching also. I've heard that access concentration for jhanas is needed and necessary for insight. Is this true? Yeah, I don't really want to. I mean, it's not. It's a good question. It's just it's technical. I don't not really interested in the technicalities of something being necessary for something else. And I hope it doesn't sound like I'm trying to avoid the question or uh, it's you know that this is a problem for our tradition. It's certainly not. I mean, that's just these are just words, and it gets complicated, and everybody has different ideas. I mean, I guess if I'm going to answer it, I'm not trying to avoid the question. I'm going to answer it then technically yes you need access concentration but what is access concentration what is it really it's I think only in the commentaries and then it's interpreted differently by different people and is access concentration in the Tipitaka I can't remember it doesn't really matter because they're just words I mean they do they're not just words they do describe things but it's more like if you focus too much on these things, you get caught up in concepts, you get caught up in categorization and, and pigeonholing and that sort of thing. The important thing, if we want to really make it practical, so I'm not this isn't a I'm not trying to shy away from this or anything. But but let's just something that's gonna be more helpful than worrying about this type of concentration. The five hindrances. Because that's where most people can agree. Five hindrances, you gotta get rid of them. You got to overcome them. There are two ways to overcome them. One is by avoiding them, and the other is by understanding them. And ultimately, you have to go through the practice of understanding them. You have to face and you have to see clearly. Maybe that's not even fair. It's not quite like that, but. It's more like the, the quickest and the most direct way is to deal with the hindrances, to just face them and try and understand them, try and see clearly. But the point is that once you see clearly there are no hindrances, and then call it what you will, call it access, call it whatever, there's, it, there's no question it's concentration once the five hindrances are gone. Now how you do that, there are different ways to do that. One is to avoid them entirely, the other is to try and momentarily deal with them in such a way that they do still go away. And you are able to see more clearly, but it's a more natural approach. It's a less pleasant approach, I think, but where you actually say to yourself, disliking or liking or so on. So I just, I tend to, I think it's not so helpful often to be too 
caught up in technical words. That's my only concern. I don't like to answer, to really focus on questions that deal with terminology too much. I think we get tripped up by terminology. Because you reify things, you know. That's why a mantra is so powerful, because it really reifies. It it makes something real. Like when you say pain, pain, it, it really, you know, it's a very useful tool. But when you do that for buzzwords like sankara, there are traditions that go on and on about sankara, and you reify this as a concept, and it's too much. It can be too much. Depends on the person, but it's easy to make it too much when things become buzzwords like jhana or upachara samadhi and that sort of thing. I experience pain when moving my legs during walking meditation. The book says to stop walking and note distractions, but my pain only arises during the walking. Which one should I note and focus on? Yeah, that's a tough one. I would still try and stop. Stop and maybe just say to yourself one time pain, just to remind yourself it's pain. I think it's something that's going to be temporary anyway because as you get more comfortable with walking the pain it's not always the case you know so if you're walking I generally I still wouldn't say pain I would still say walking or stepping right or lifting placing or so on you don't have to note everything let's just put it to that because you don't have to note everything just because you feel pain doesn't mean you have to note it only because you're doing something else. Now, if you weren't doing anything else, absolutely you should note it. But you're walking, so focus on the walking. Point being that when you say lifting and placing, you're also clearly aware of the pain. You don't need to say pain because you're saying something else that keeps you present. Something else that's present, a part of the present experience. I would generally still recommend focusing on the walking. But do stop. If the pain does overtake it, stop. And if it stops, then start walking again. It's fine. But sometimes it might stay. And if it stays and you're standing still, then you can note it. Is it possible to achieve liberation by practicing only noting? Or are other practices and studying needed as well? Uh, studying, I mean, you, 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 you've already done some studying because of learning how to practice. So that's really, practically speaking, often enough. You don't have to study a lot. You don't have to study a lot if you have a teacher who can guide you through it. Other practices, well, ethics is necessary. Some amount of right view is going to be necessary, so if you don't have a right view, you might have to do some study, a little bit of studying. But again, that's mainly caught up, mainly uh, associated with learning how to practice and learning the correct way of perceiving reality, that sort of thing. 
And mainly, if you just practice this way, then yeah, practically speaking, it's it's enough. When noting hearing, do we bring our attention to the ear or the source of the sound? Just say hearing, hearing. Sometimes you'll be aware of the ear. It will be from the perspective of, of knowing that the ear is hearing. Sometimes it will be from the perspective of knowing that the sound has hit the ear, but generally it's just an experience of hearing. All right, so no, not the source of the sound, because the source of the sound is the ear. The source of the sound, like if there's a dog barking, don't ever go to the dog. You wouldn't put your mind in the dog. So right, yeah, no, 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 not the source of the sound, because it's not the source of the sound. Sound arises because of experience, because of consciousness, and that occurs at the ear. I don't even know if it's fair to say it occurs at the ear itself. It occurs in the part of the brain, perhaps, that processes it. Anyway, it's, you don't have to be too technical about that. No, the ear is fine. Note at the ear. If the feet becomes numb, is it useful to experiment by standing up and insight into the blood flow and legs becoming part of you again? I'm not sure the whole that's a very you have to be more careful writing out your questions, please. I don't know if this is a native English speaker, but if you are, please be careful because it's hard for us to understand and again I, as I said before you have to say it. it's not if you're going to ask a question take it seriously this isn't something you can do offhand so I'd ask let's put it this way rewrite your question to be clear to clearly ask maybe more succinctly ask but at least clearly ask what you're what you're trying to ask because I don't understand that sentence I mean, I guess I could take a crack at it, but I'm going to say, as, as a sort of a teacher discipline, be more careful with your questions. How can you use meditation to stop caring about what people think of you? Well, yes, I mean... You don't use meditation. I mean, really, the the question is, does meditation, as we teach it, allow you to stop being obsessed and concerned about what people think of you? And the answer is yes. So the how is, how do you practice this meditation? I recommend to read our booklet if you haven't. If you have, I recommend to consider doing an at-home course. It's all free. You can sign up. Some of these next questions are not directly related to meditation, but I'll ask them. Can be a difficult thing to deal with in our society for so many reasons. Diets, body image issues, or overconsumption of junk foods. How would you suggest we handle food as lay people? 
Well, I think one big problem is people feel guilty. I mean, the biggest problem, of course, is is greed. But putting that aside, something that, and not putting that aside, but, but putting beyond that, before you even get to that, something that gets in your way of understanding and overcoming greed is guilt and body image, right? Feeling you're fat or uh, out of, yeah, out of shape. Uh, so you have to deal with that, and you have to under, understand that it's not about forcing or about changing. It's about understanding. So you come. It's like you come. We're like the. We're like a judge, or like the UN or something, where we go in and we have this conflict with a judge it's between two people with a international body like the UN it's countries or states or whatever and you want to mediate you want so you have to look and you have to see what's going on we're kind of like that meditation the meditator approaches their own life as though they were a mediator as though they were a, an investigator and you come in and here's the crime scene or here's the war zone or here's the courtroom and you're trying to discern the truth That's how it should be approached You're not trying to fix things You're not trying to change things You're just trying to understand Because that's what we're lacking Ultimately what we're lacking is understanding Wisdom So that's where you want to go That's where you want to head The direction you want to head towards I mean giving up any attachment to food Is such a such a difficult thing Of course because it's the only thing that we have been attached to since we were born. We started by getting attached to our mother's milk and then baby food and, and you know, before sex, before music, before anything, it was food. Food is something that we're very, very much attached to and that's why people have sometimes a hard time eating food from a different culture and when they go back to their home and they have their parents' food, why it's so wonderful. Because of how deeply ingrained this attachment is, how how old and deep seated it is. So don't be discouraged when you find yourself still craving things. But it's not not that difficult to get to the point where you're able to where 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 you don't crave, where you where you don't need food. Meaning you don't need junk food, you don't need food to make you happy. You still enjoy it and you still want it. and That's a very hard thing to get rid of. But Meaning meaning you don't have any... Um, meaning you don't overeat. You don't have any problem stopping when you're full, for example. That's a good example. A big line in the sand that you can that can tell you whether you've actually become mindful or not is whether you overeat because of good taste and that sort of thing because food tastes good if you're overeating meaning you're full and you continue to eat and then you get a stomach ache or you feel bloated or that sort of thing if that's happening you really weren't mindful and that's a, that's doesn't mean that doesn't mean you're an evil terrible person or anything or you're hopeless it means that's the work you have to do once you get to that point then you've done very good work you haven't solved the problem, but you can be clear that you're mindful. Because it's a very very gross sort of thing to eat when you're full, right? You're hurting yourself. 
You're bringing yourself the pain of overeating. It's hard to do that when you're mindful. I forget my doubts about meditation. Did I understand it or just forget? Forget your doubts. Well, if you forget them, you just forget them. I don't know exactly what that means. I guess more clearly you're asking uh, when you don't have doubt. Well, we don't always have doubt about things that we doubt about. It's hard to say whether you've actually abandoned your doubts or whether they're just taking a break. I can't say for you. I'm not sure. I mean, I guess well, someone might ask this question because they're hopeful. And you shouldn't be hopeful. You shouldn't try to think like that. Don't worry about whether you have or not uh, understood or overcome or something like that. Just take things as they come. If there's no doubt, well, good. You don't have to worry about it. If it comes back, well, okay, then you got to deal with it. Day one, you're noting arising and ceasing. Is Dukkha absent or present? Again, with the terminology, I'm not sure this is such a useful question. What, what, what need do you have for that, for an answer? I'm just going to pass on it. If you can explain why it's important to you, then maybe, but I don't think it's that important. Yeah, Oh no, I'm not criticizing. Shraddha, you don't have to worry. I'm not, I'm not ever going to think afterwards, boy, did Shraddha miss the ball on that one, asking that question. You po you post them. That's fine. I don't, you don't. You're doing a great, great thing for us here. Be, be be happy. Be be at peace. You post whatever you whatever you like, and I won't ever criticize. This one is also maybe about to. I don't. I don't. I don't know. I understand that nimitta is not important, but is it a sign that you're practicing correctly? Not experiencing nimitta does not necessarily mean you're not. Concentrating properly. Again, with the the um, the terminology. So I just don't really want to get into it, um, which may be a no. I, I mean, it just doesn't feel important to me. You're getting caught up in in words like nimitta, and and from our perspective, that's important because what is an, what does that word mean? It means something you see. So if you see something, then say seeing, seeing. In in certain practices, that that terminology is important because it's a thing you're trying to achieve. But that's not our type of meditation. So let me say that it's not a bad question. It absolutely isn't. But um, we don't look at things that way. Let's put it that way. In our terminology, we don't use such words, even though it's a very Buddhist word and it's an important one for certain practices. It's just not for our practice. When you see something, you would say seeing, seeing. My teacher uses the uses the word all the time. Aromnimit. Aromnimit means. I mean, it's just a. It's just a Buddhist term that means. Uh, arom is just a thing that you uh, experience, and uh, nimit is nimitta. But how he uses it, he means something you see, and and what should you do about it? Say seeing, seeing until it goes away. So okay, sorry to actually answer your question. If you don't see anything, it's not it's not a sign that you're doing something wrong, right? So I maybe should have just stuck to that. Yeah. 
but it's important to clarify that it's because in our tradition they're not a part of the practice. Sometimes when I meditate in nature, I get annoyed when I feel insects climbing on me. Shall I just brush them away? If you do it mindfully. But you should also note annoyed, annoyed, of course. First first note first and foremost, note that you're annoyed. And note the feeling of them crawling on you. Both of those much, much before you would ever brush them away. When seeing an object, is it advisable to note that the eye consciousness is arising in dependence on eye organ and object? That's not noting, that's intellectualizing, and no, that's not recommended. Noting is saying seeing. When you say to yourself seeing, I mean, I don't use the word noting all that much. It's, it's the word that's been chosen for the English language in our tradition, but I use saying. I say, say to yourself, because it's just too abstract. Noting is just, uh, I don't know, it's too much terminology again. Let's be clear. What are we doing? We're saying. Not out loud, not with the mouth, but saying to yourself in your mind. We, we use that terminology, in, that way of speech in English. Say to yourself means in your mind. As a mantra, I use the word mantra, because so, I want to make, I'm trying to make it clear that it's a technique. Do it that way but yeah so that's not how we would use the word note of course in English that is what it means is it best to remove ourselves from triggering situations or to face them mindfully Sometimes it's really difficult to live in our society because we can be constantly triggered by wrong things. Well, removing yourself is not always a, ba a bad idea. It's often a very good idea. But before you do that, you absolutely should begin with mindfulness as you can. If you can't, remove yourself. If you can't be mindful, remove yourself and then be mindful. Whenever you can, whenever you're able, start being mindful. The best is if you can do it before you have to remove yourself. The best is, of course, if you didn't have to remove yourself because it didn't trigger you. But the way to overcome triggering is to start to learn to understand the process of being triggered. And the only way you'll do that is if you start to be mindful. But sometimes the best way to do that is to leave. Because if you do react outwardly, you cause a lot of problems if you get triggered and then shout at someone or hurt someone or that sort of thing. Or even if you just get overwhelmed with anger or, for, or upset or that sort of thing. Better to remove yourself and use it to help you be more mindful. When we give food to monks, should we be thinking of nutrition for body and mind more than our preference of our desire for taste, or does it not matter? It's a good question. I mean, it's a very mundane sort of thing, but it is a very sort of Buddhist, I mean, it's culturally a very big Buddhist problem, but it's also the the philosophically, theoretically, 
Buddhist problem. Where does merit, where does goodness come from? Goodness comes from kindness, right? Generosity. So if you give something that is hard to give, like potentially something that, that you want yourself, right? But yeah, something that you want yourself. But it's not because of the wanting. You have to be careful that you don't feel good about giving to someone because it's something you crave. But it's more, I mean, more, more clearly would be something that has value to you. Meaning it's um, like your, your lunch. Suppose someone, like in Sri Lanka sometimes, people would catch me on the street going on alms round and they would give me their lunch. I mean, that's pretty noble, right? Because that was something that was of use to them that they gave to me. And I, I'm assuming that many of them were able to go and get more lunch, but still, they gave me something that was really theirs. If you go and say, if you say, I'm going to give something to a monk, and you go and, or to anyone, and you go and buy it, well, that never was really yours. The money was yours, but that's a little more abstract. Either way, it's very conceptual. And... So it's not really a part of the path But practically it's a very good sort of thing Because we all de We deal in concepts This is my lunch, I give it to someone else And that conceptually sets our mind in a very good way But as far as dis Deciding to give food to a monk Because it's food that you like So you go and buy food And you think, okay, I like that one I'm gonna... That I think is is misled That I think is actually not proper because what what difference does it make whether you like it? The only difference is it, it it cultivates craving in you. Probably it's a bad idea. Suppose you want to buy something for anyone, so you give them something that you like. What is that going to do? It's going to make you crave it. I guess the benefit could be that you crave it and then you have the experience of giving away something that you crave. So that that is, I guess, a good thing. I'm not convinced, though. I'm not convinced. Because there has to be the evoking of craving Like with giving, the generosity, the renunciation If you have something that you crave Then giving it to someone else is a good thing Because it's renouncing, it's a way of renouncing That's true So suppose you had a lunch And you think, well, some of this lunch I'll give to someone What should I give them? I'll give them the part I like the most because that will help me renounce. That will lead to renunciation. Um, but on the other hand, you know, so there's a lot of factors here. And then this isn't just a practical or a cultural thing. It's a theoretical and philosophical thing. It's important to understand the nature of things because if you're thinking of nutrition, then that's kind of you. You're kind towards the person. I think a lot of people give food to monks not really caring about whether it's going to be healthy or good for the monk or something that they would be able to eat, they don't really care. They're much more self-absorbed. And that, I mean, I'm sorry, I don't mean to sound critical, but I think often there is a, a sort of, it's not that it's a bad thing, it's just limited. And it's much, it, it's, it's more, it's high-minded when someone actually considers what would be of use for the other person. Of course, right? That's reasonable. You don't just give because the Buddha said giving is good. Well, that's a good thing, but you also give because something the person could use. Well, that's magnanimous and high-minded of you and kind, thoughtful, considerate. 
Those are very good qualities. So develop cultivating those is a very good thing. All of all things to consider, not to get too caught up in thought, but to give you an idea that it's not magic. Giving is not some magic trick that gives you good karma. It's about good qualities of mind that are evoked by, as a result of the practice. It very much matters how your mind is 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 set when you do something. Can a human get to the point where they can stand some of the worst pains one can experience? If so, how does one reach this state? Yeah, I mean, the practice that we teach is very much geared or inclined in that direction. And the answer is, is yes. Buddha taught to be able to bear with pain even though it might kill you. Even pain that seems like it's deadly, it's going to, you know, just pain, deadly pain. I don't know if you meant... If there's pain that that's killing you, like some some injury that's actually killing you, that you shouldn't try to heal the injury. That's not what he meant. I'm pretty sure. But if you're dying and it's just deadly pain, then the pain itself should absolutely be borne with. Meaning, meaning you shouldn't be crying or yelling or moaning or wailing or upset at all. And by shouldn't, I mean if you were enlightened, or the goal, the ultimate goal is to get to the point where you don't no longer are upset by anything. If we see stress in something, should we say to ourselves, ourselves this is not I, me, mine? You can, but it's not really necessary or, or not all that fruitful. If you see stress, you should note the stress. Stress, stress. That's the best way to see it clearly. Because when you see it clearly, there's no I, me, or mine anyway. So telling yourself doesn't make it so, doesn't make it clear. How do I deal with not knowing the outcome of something that may not result in a favorable outcome? I'm, ner I'm nervous and my family is suffering as a result. Well, if you've read the booklet, you should. if you haven't read the booklet, I recommend to read it. But in the booklet, it talks about these sorts of things. If you're nervous, say nervous, nervous. I think the point is a lot of times the questions are about something that you don't realize is just... I mean, the focusing is on the conceptual uh, situation that you're in. Don't focus on that. I mean, you have to practically focus on that, but, but let that go. Okay, so you'll have to deal with things, with situations. But put your heart into focusing on the nervousness. 
Say to yourself, nervous, nervous. That's much more important. Much more important. Read the booklet if you haven't. Rick definitely recommend. I mean, it sounds self-promoting, but it's not really. It's not like it's my teachings. I'm just passing them on. Booklet is easier than having to tell you all about how to practice again and again. So definitely read that or something like it. Can we say suffering, 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 and feeling pain, anxiety, and other negative states instead of noting precisely the nature of the suffering? Mm, I wouldn't. I mean, it's not technically, it could technically be okay, but see, the problem is you're kind of abstracting it when you say suffering. It's You're intellectualizing it. Suffering is kind of more of a philosophical thing. Pain is the reality. Anxiety is the reality. There'd be no reason to abstract them like that. It wouldn't be of any benefit. If you dislike it, you should say disliking. Be a little clearer about what you actually mean. I mean clearer than just saying suffering. Martin, we have some other non. That was the last. Ah, we're question. done. Are there are there any meditation questions? Yeah. Those Otherwise, the, the meditation. If there are, I'll take them. But then we're done. Oh, none. Okay. All right. That's all then. Thank you all for coming. Good questions. Good group. Thank you all. I wish you all a good night, a good day, a good life. I wish you all a good journey in samsara. May it be a short one. May you become free from suffering, find peace, happiness, and freedom. Sadhu.